Hi, and welcome to the Girlfriend God. My name is Kelly, and I'll be your host. Hello, and welcome to the Girlfriend God. My name is Kelly Applegate. I am the creator of the Girlfriend God content. And uh, if you're new to the show, this podcast is in search of and in service to the Divine Feminine, and I try and bring you an equal mix of academic research and emotional spiritual experience. So, welcome. Um, Today, I'm going to be talking to you about my patron goddess, Ellen of the Ways, and most of the people that I've interviewed on this show so far, uh, all of those academics, they, they talk a lot about how different goddesses are kind of uh, a conflation of or a bringing together of bits and pieces of a whole bunch of different goddesses that came before them uh, and the iterations that they have been through with each passing millennia. So I'm going to try and do that for you a little bit today uh, with Ellen of the Ways. But the thing about Ellen is that there is very little source information out there in the online world. The most definitive source material on Ellen is the book by Caroline Wise, uh, Finding Ellen, the Quest for Ellen of the Ways, which is a... Uh, It is a collection of essays both by her and other authors and several artists, um, all of whom have revealed Ellen of the ways to the world. That's what it says on uh, on the back cover of the book description. So I mentioned this in an earlier podcast episode. I think it's when I was talking to Kendall that normally, like when I was practicing a lot of witchcraft and spell work and ritual work, normally if you go online, you can find um, at least some information that's based in evidence and archaeological findings. Any goddess, pretty much any goddess you've ever heard of, uh, you can find a correspondence, usually from a witch, by that explains what herbs and what flowers and what colors and what offerings and all of that stuff that is associated with that goddess. That is not the case with Ellen of the Ways, or at least that that has not been my experience of doing some kind of deep dive research online. So, when it comes to that part of Ellen's mythology. I've kind of had to make it up as I've gone along and kind of created my own mythology of things that are very personally relevant to me, um, but have no basis in source material or archaeological evidence. So, um, for example, like I associate the stone malachite with Ellen uh, for no other reason than that just felt like the right connection to make. 
maybe it's because I do see Ellen as sort of a green lady, woman of the wood. Uh, so the dark green of Malachite reminds me of forests. And so I made that, uh, that correlation for myself. So anyway, uh, without further ado, I'm kind of just going to give you an overview of some of the things in Caroline Wise's book. And when you guys have questions, you can contact me on social media or you can send me an email at thegirlfriendgod at gmail.com. So before we get to Caroline Wise's book, I just, I, I have to call out this Derek James Healy guy that wrote this very scathing article that was published on Medium, which is sad because I usually like what I read on Medium, um, called Debunking Ellen of the Ways, which is really just a rant about alleged cultural appropriation and unverified personal gnosis and ranting about that and his own spiritual journey. And I just thought, I, I, I mean, if, if you want to look it up, uh, like I said, it's on medium.com and it's called Debunking Ellen of the Ways and he published it September 2nd of 2021. And I, I I, I, yeah, I don't know what this guy's issue is. I don't know why he felt it necessary to write what he did. So before I, I really get into the essays in Caroline's book, I, I just want to, I got to call out this Derek James Healy guy who published an article on medium.com, which is disappointing because I usually like medium. Um, although I don't always read it. Anyway, he wrote this scathing article called Debunking Ellen of the Ways, and it's just... I mean, it's so unnecessarily cruel, and a lot of what he says is there's this great response comment by somebody named, I don't know, Stilgar, some anonymous person who left a comment after reading the article and I so agree with what he said and he said it much more nicely than than I would have but this guy like his whole article is not only slamming Caroline Wise saying that this is a goddess that she entirely made up which is incorrect she openly admits to saying that she created the name Ellen of the Ways but that's it so, uh, yeah, like, I don't know what his problem is or his problem with female deities is or his problem, just his problems in general, which made him want to get on medium.com and write an article that essentially at the end of it, if you can read between lines, says nothing more than I have a fragile ego and need to be validated, so I'm going to tell you all the reasons that I'm the best researcher ever and why everyone else is stupid and wrong. Uh, at least that's how it read to me. So, yeah, like I said, I just wanted to call that guy out. Derek James Healy, debunking Ellen of the Ways. He wrote it in, he, it was posted on September 2nd in 2021, if you are curious to read it. And... <laughs> 
the comment uh, that follows, which is really kind of telling this guy that he doesn't know what he's talking about as much as uh, the people that he claims don't know what they're talking about. So, and I, I just want to say for myself that, and I, and I don't want to get into a big argument or a big discussion about cultural appropriation, because of course that is a real thing. But what I have seen in this age, um, especially online and on social media, I think that cultural appropriation is one of those phrases that gets thrown around so frequently that, especially in religious, religious and spiritual traditions, that people may not may not fully understand what cultural appropriation is, and that maybe because someone who didn't understand it explained it to them that way. In any case, um, <clears throat> you know, when we get right down to it, at the end of the day, all of our current religious and spiritual traditions were culturally appropriated from things and beliefs and peoples and mythologies and theologies and, you know, and, and on and on and on of things that came before. Like, all our stuff came from other people's stuff. And, uh, you know, and I don't mean to make that an overgeneral, well, that is an overgeneralization. But I just mean in this specific instance, um, and in the way that, that this man was talking about them. So, um, yeah, like I said, I just wanted to call that guy out and, and, and get that out of the way. Uh, and as I said, if you do go read the article, I really encourage you to read the response to the article because it was brilliant. So, okay, enough about Mr. Healy and moving on to the book. And of course, I, I encourage you to read this book for your for yourselves. Uh, I'm just going to go through and just highlight some of the things that really resonated with me in other research that I've done um, about other goddesses and about how, because of the guests that I've had on the show, I, I see more and more and more that what I was just talking about, that so many of these uh, currently known and worshipped goddesses are conflations and amalgamations of multiple goddesses that came before. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. So since I'm not used to really um, lecturing, I'm just going to talk and give you some facts. And I hope that you get something out of it in whatever haphazard manner I present it to you. So, after reading um, the book, Finding Ellen, The Quest for Ellen of the Ways, and doing some supplemental research online uh, with other authors in the book and a couple other people that write about the same things, there's some basic threads and associations of how Ellen of the Ways uh, kind of came into existence. So before I get into the uh, the meat of the book, I wanted to talk a little bit about ley lines and deer tracks. So m many of you have probably 
heard of ley lines. Uh, there used to be a Lay Hunter magazine in the late 70s and early 80s and something called The Dragon Project, um, which many of the authors in Carolyn's book were involved with in the 70s and 80s. Um, and and Ley Lines, I, I mean, I think it's one of those things that it either falls into your spiritual belief system or it doesn't, um, because the guy that started The Dragon Project he was looking for science. He was looking for physical evidence of earth and energy currents um, of ley lines. So that project went on for over 20 years. I think there were some disagreements between how it started and what it became. And I believe that in sort of new age circles today, uh, ley lines are still discussed. Initially, the idea was that there were straight tracks that crisscrossed all over the globe and kind of like latitude and longitude. And there are both man-made and natural historic sites and structures that kind of fall into alignment around these lines. So people believe that the earth energy flows through the current of rivers and streams in these areas and carries that energy with it as to the trees in the area, the rocks, the plants, the fauna, the animals, that they all carry this ley line energy uh, with, within them. So, like I said, that belief has been discussed a lot uh, since the 70s and 80s. And... For me, I think there's enough evidence to support that ley lines exist, uh, but that's just me, and it may be just part of my overall spiritual belief system that wants to believe that. You know, I say a lot in my own life that even if it isn't true, even if something isn't true, I believe it, and that's what matters, because believing or not believing determines how I feel about it, um, or if I want to do more research about it. So. There, and I wish that I could have found it online for you guys this morning, but I think there was another theory about early royals wanting different castles to be connected. But, you know, I could be making that shit up off the top of my head because I don't remember where I read it and I couldn't find anything about it uh, today. So... The thing about ley lines is, and and she talks much more about this in her book as to the various authors, ley lines kind of almost became synonymous with shamanic trance journeying. Because the other thing that the Dragon Project did was to have volunteer people dream along the ley lines and a bunch of other stuff. In um, in the introduction to the book, she says, in, at that time I was a monitor with the Dragon Project, which was founded in 1977. Its purpose then was to be an interdisciplinary body investigating reports from folklore and oral accounts that certain prehistoric sites had unusual properties or that the earth below them did. The project explored potential electrical and radiation anomalies as part of its investigations. 
the Dragon Project these days is concerned with consciousness studies and landscape. I don't know if that's still true. So Caroline's book quotes uh, Paul Devereaux's work. And so in it, she, she gives us this quote, which is to say, in brief, the straight landscape lines were a formalized expression of shamanic trance, whether occurring as a desert marking or ritual, ceremonial road. It was, in essence, a specific and toptic pattern derived, it would seem, from the tunnel form constant, which is an experiential straight line. Coincidentally, as this mystery was being unraveled, archaeologists were discovering and Topic, sorry, I'm having a hard time with that word. And topic imagery in prehistoric rock art, much of which is now realized to be of a shamanic nature. The landscape lines were simply a larger version of such patterns deriving from the same shamanic source. The symbolic interpretation given to such straight lines by the native peoples themselves was naturally very different to our modern neurophysiological explanations. To them, the original nature of the straight landscape line appears to have been symbolic of spirit travel, of journeying in the other world of spirits, of the ancestors, which in shamanic terms was simply another level or dimension. The line was a sign or even an actual mapping of the shaman's ecstatic out-of-body journey. So she quoted that from Paul Devereaux's website, which is Paul Devereaux, that's D-E-V-R-E-U-X dot C-O dot U-K forward slash H-T-M-L forward slash body underscore ley line. So, so it seems to me that Devereaux really set out to debunk the earlier theories of ley lines um, made by Alfred Watkins, and he was the one saying that they were energy lines between monuments and man-made structures. And so all of this is relevant because later on uh, in my research and later on in Caroline's book, she talks about the deer tracks. So even though the ley lines and the deer tracks aren't the same thing, I suspect that there's a connection there. I don't know why I believe that. It's an intuitive feeling. Maybe there is, maybe they're not, because as I'm fond of saying, what the fuck do I know, right? I know what I can tell you I found in my research and what I believe intuitively without any uh, evidence to back up what it is I believe. So, you know, make of that what you will. So stay with me here. I think the connection there between these ley lines, no matter which guy was right, uh, or maybe they're both right, I often think that two opposing truths can both be true at the same time, if that makes sense. So with the deer tracks, and the deer by deer tracks I mean the migratory path that deer take as they travel in the wild, to find food and shelter and move with the changing of the seasons and all of that. So the deer and deer tracks, which may also be ley lines, 
relate us back to the Sami, um, the Sami tribes, which is a, a Finno-Ugric, it's another word I'm not sure how to pronounce, Finno-Ugric speaking people, um, and they inhabit the, they inhabit large northern parts of Norway, Sweden, and Finland, Russia, and in particular in Russia, the Kola Peninsula. And some of those still, they used to all be, but some of them still today are a semi-nomadic reindeer herding community, meaning that the Sami travel across those northern parts and they eat with, sleep with, commune with um, the reindeer. And I say commune with because I think as a semi-nomadic tribe, they're very in touch with the earth and its creatures, and it changes as they move from landscape to landscape. And they use the deer for food, clothing, shelter, tools with that they make from the bone when they have to kill a deer to eat it, um, and transportation. That's my understanding is that they have domesticated them enough within the tribe that they can be ridden. And this has to do with Ellen because Ellen is a deer goddess. And in researching the Sami traditions, there were at one time many, many deer cults who worshipped an antlered goddess, which is what Ellen of the Ways, Ellen of the Hosts, Ellen of whatever you want to call her, is a reindeer goddess because she is an antlered goddess and reindeer are the only species of deer where the females have antlers. So that's the connection that we can make to the Sami tribe and the deer tracks and potentially the ley lines because I assume that at some point the deer tracks, the straight tracks, um, either intersect with or run parallel to some of these ley lines. That's just a theory, but I'm not a scientist, so I have no proof of that whatsoever. So, like you're getting an educational talk without me really giving you any information about source material, but I will. I will at the end, I promise. So in addition to the Sami in Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia, we also have some London lore of deer that relate to Ellen. Um, what's this guy's name? Just a second. Harold Bailey, B-A-Y-L-E-Y, -E wrote a book in 1935 called The Lost Language of London. And in that book, he says, Caroline Y says that he says, Barley's inspired but unreferenced and unsupported assumptions spoke of Ellen as a lost British huntress 
goddess who guarded the old trackways, those are the deer tracks, orlay lines maybe, uh, guarded the old trackways accompanied by a greyhound. He saw her as a British version of the goddess Diana and consequently probably Artemis. Bailey also thought of Ellen as a goddess and guardian of London, claiming that London was named for her, El Lun Dun. He believed that Ellen was remembered in the legend that St. Helena oversaw the building of the Roman London Wall. And there are more um, references to St. Helen later in the book. Or, I'm sorry, St. Helena which has, you know, lore and legend of her own. I want to go back to Caroline's introduction because I think it's interesting that, um, so Finding Ellen, the quest for Ellen of the Ways was published in 2015, I believe. And uh, she's got a lot of really good inf information in her introduction. And also the whole book has a fairly exhaustive list of references with source material, which you know how much I love my source material. <laughs> That's why I have all these academics on the show. Um, and it's, it's interesting that she wrote this in 2015 because I see this as even more true now than it was then. She writes, there has been a growing interest in a kind of contemporary tribe of priestesses of Ellen has appeared within the wider goddess movement. That Ellen of the Ways was not just an unsubstantiated personal gnosis confined to her own visionary experience, but rather a phenomenon that others are responding to. And she says a little further down the page that when she started writing about Ellen and speaking about Ellen, there was a curious hostility and very real disapproval from certain sections of the pagan community who told me I was wrong, that there was no such thing as a horned goddess, only a horned god. Having spent some time in the pagan community, I can see that a contingent of uh, neo-pagans would, would feel that way. She goes on to say, there was a sense I had crossed some fundamentalist religious boundary. There was no room for the horned goddess, even among our own community in those days. Um, so I would say that's still partially true today, but I, I find it interesting, and I've mentioned this before, uh, kind of tangentially in other podcast episodes, that Goddesses in modern culture and modern witchcraft and in neo-paganism tend to, I don't know, be suddenly pulled from obscurity and then because of social media um, and Hollywood, suddenly that goddess is known everywhere. I don't know about you, but I had never even heard a passing reference to Hecate 10 years ago, at least not in the circle that I was in. And then it was as if 
overnight, somebody pulled her from her primordial nature, and then she became a part of everything. Overnight, there were, you know, 20 Facebook groups and 30 Instagram accounts and TikTok videos of people dressing up as what they believe Hecate to be. And then, of course, if you watch Hollywood produce things, uh, in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, the last two episodes, Hecate was who they were worshipping. So, I don't know, it's interesting to me to see that phenomenon happen. Um, But I also have seen that happen a little bit with Ellen of the Ways. Again, an obscure goddess that I had never heard of until I did, and I don't remember the first time I heard of her. Um, But then there were websites about it, and there were postings about it in pagan groups on Facebook. And there were... There is a there are discussion groups and study groups and now there are the last time I looked about I don't know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say 50 different Etsy um, creators that that make things that are related to Ellen of the Ways. So I, I just think it's so fascinating how that happens in our culture. A goddess that no one ever heard of is suddenly on the tip of a ruin's tongue, which I think is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, you know, I'm a fan of this kind of more subtle goddess movement that I think has been happening for at least the past couple decades. But I digress. So I'm going to get into some of these things later in the book, but, you know, I'm also, um, you know, I'm not um, an educator or a professor, so I don't want to drone on too long because I think that would be boring for you guys. So this episode might be a little bit shorter. In Caroline's book, she has a fairly comprehensive list of the paths that her and the other authors went down to find these pieces of Ellen of the Ways in history. So on page uh, 22, again in her introduction, she said, she says, and I'm going to paraphrase, several contributors had set out to explore this elusive figure of St. Helen, including St. Ellen of Wales, Elin Ludog, Ludog, Lloyd Dog, I don't know. It's Welsh. It's Welsh. That's all I can say. Uh, Ellen, who was also known as Ellen of the Hosts, whose myths and history became intertwined with St. Helena of Constantinople. Other mythic Helens and Ellens had become attached to these characters too, making up the end result, which is our Ellen of the Ways, uh, such as Arthurian Elaine, the Lily Maid, of Celtic myth. They even looked into Helen of Troy. 
But she goes on to say this heroic famed beauty may also hide an earlier goddess in her cloak discussed in part three, the Green Lady. Anybody who's even half a pagan or pagan adjacent uh, is familiar with the lore of the Green Man and the Green Lady, I think. I don't really know who listens to this show, so I really don't have an understanding of what you know and don't know. But again, feel free to reach out to me on social media. That's just Instagram and TikTok. Um, or you can send me an email at thegirlfriendgod at gmail.com. So one of the first things that Caroline talks about in another, um, in an essay that was written by her called Ellen of the Roads of the Country and the Town discusses the connection between the um, Mabinogion, which which you, you may have heard of. It's a um, it's kind of this really large volume of folklore and other worldly tales from the medieval period. Kind of like the Canterbury Tales, but not. Sort of, but not. Um, so in it, there is a story called The Dream of Meskin Weldig. Weldig. Boy, I'm horrible with the uh, Welsh names. Sad, since I have some ancestry in Wales. But anyway, that tale is about this, I think he was a a king or the leader of a, I don't know. Anyway, it, oh, he was the 4th century Western Roman emperor and commander of Britain. And in this story, he falls asleep and finds... Ellen in a dream and then becomes obsessed and blows off all his military responsibilities to go searching for her. So Ellen in that is, I want to try this again, Elin Ludog, L-U-Y-D-D-O-G. Please, please, someone who speaks Welsh (laughs) <laughs> please contact me because I am not doing it justice I am sure anyway so as a result of that story or maybe in that story she becomes known as this uh, Ellen of the Rhodes because she helped this commander of Britain um, as he went searching for her she was thought to influence him to make the high roads from one stronghold to another across the island of Britain. So with that, she became known as Ellen of the Hosts. So I found what I was talking about earlier, uh, later in this chapter. This is a quote from... a book called Quicksilver Heritage, The Mystic Lays, Their Legacy of Ancient Wisdom, published by Thorsons in Northamptonshire in 1974. And that was written by Paul 
Screton, Paul Screton, S-C-R-E-E-T-O-N. And again, the name of the book is Quicksilver Heritage. And in it, he writes, according to the Mabinogion, Ellen built a system of roads from one castle to another throughout the Isle of Britain. This suggests the construction of trackways following the placing of stones, mounds, and one tree hills to mark the ley lines. Ellen, or the Christianized Saint Helen, mother of Constantine, has given rise to such names on lays as Hill, Hill, Ellie Stones, Ellen's Roads, and Ellen's Causeway. So there is that link to the Welsh princess. So that is Ellen's connection to um, this kind of Welsh uh, and Celtic mythology. That's where we can find Ellen in that context. So Caroline um, goes on in this chapter on, on page 46, which is in the chapter, Ellen is Goddess of Sovereignty. Um, she's talking about the Goddess of Sovereignty, uh, according to her, uh, was that goddess was depicted on the 50 pence piece as Britannia. Now, if you are a TV watcher, perhaps you're familiar with the show Britannia, which many people have complained is historically inaccurate, and though that may be true, the theme of Britannia is that the Roman soldiers come back at, I think, 43 or maybe it was 46 AD, and uh, this land of Britannia was kind of the last Celtic holdout where they were clinging to their beliefs and traditions, refusing to be overtaken by the Christianity that the Romans were bringing. So in Caroline's book, she says, and there's a reference there too. Hang on just a second. Well, her reference is just to the Burns of Brigantia um, in the National Museum of Scotland. So, so this is her own kind of gnosis, I guess, but I'm going to repeat it anyway because it's relevant. It says, The goddess of sovereignty is a figure familiar to many, if only from her depiction upon the 50-cent piece as Britannia. Britannia's first depiction dates to the reign of the Emperor Hadrian from eleven seven from I'm sorry, one one seven to one thirty eight CE, when the land of Britain was shown as a woman seated upon a rock with a spiked shield and a spear. And in the mythology in Roman mythology, the attributes of the Britannia were linked with those of Minerva. And so the Palladian shield of shelter, the spear of bestowed victory, and the helmet of wisdom became those of Britannia also. The Romano-British statue of Brigantia 
the northern Bridget found in Burns in Dumfrieshire is also invested with the mural crown, a crown in which the turrets of a tower proclaim its wearer as the protector of a city. It remains one of the earliest images of the British goddess of the land, although it is the mythic literature of Britain and Ireland that gives us the substance of the goddess of sovereignty as a much more powerful self-motivating figure. And then she goes on to draw more connections between um, goddesses of sovereignty in Britain and Britannia and the British Isles uh, and how they connect back to Ellen of the Ways because these goddesses of sovereignties were also connected to uh, the legend of St. Saint Hel- Saint Helena, the mother of Constantine. So kind of all gets meshed together there with Welsh writers further confused by Welsh genealogy, uh, trying to link Britain with Rome and all of that. So, so in her chapter entitled um, Finding the Dear Goddess, that's a very meaty chapter, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but it might be where she makes her, her best case for the link between or the modern-day Ellen that we're talking about now and um, these ancient dear goddesses. So I'm just going to read the first paragraph. There were several potential dear goddess candidates in the British Isles to look at. In Gaelic myth, there's a figure named Thledas, who is associated with deer, and her aspects are of the fairy folk, and she is pulled in a carriage by red deer. That's a Gaelic mythology. She is of the Tuatha de Danann. Oh, I did pretty good with that one the mythic race of mighty heroes and kings of pre-Christian Ireland. The warring Tuatha de Danann themselves conquered an even older mythic race. Fleetus is mentioned in the pseudo-history, the Libor Gobela, the Book of the Taking of Ireland, which was compiled around the 11th century, and it's a um, a collection of tales and poems about the history of Ireland from its pagan past to the coming of Christianity and on into the Middle Ages. So, I, I will say this: I, you know, I have my friend Carla, who has done all this research and is one of the leading experts on Artemis in the world. That in in reading Caroline's book and in reading other source material um, about Ellen of the Ways that has come about since Caroline's book, um, that there's, for me, that I can see a link between Ellen of the Ways and, uh, and Artemis. So maybe one is disguised as the other. Uh, we can argue about that later, about which one is a part of which one. <laughs> but uh, I think there needs to be a lot more historical, archaeological, and anthropological 
research and findings um, done about Ellen of the Ways. So back to the Sami and other tribes like them. There is a tribe called the Evenki, E-V-E-N-K-I, in Siberia. So I'm going to read one more thing to you straight from the book, and then I think I'm going to just wrap up. And again, you know, I, I apologize for the kind of haphazard manner that I approach this, but if you listen to this show, you know that part of what lends to its... um genuineness or authenticity is because the show is unscripted and unrehearsed, right? So I came in with a pretty good idea of what I wanted to talk to you guys about, and um, and this is what you got. So, I, you know, listen or don't listen. I guess that's really up to you, right? So I just wanted to read the article called The Many Faces of Helena, Um, by Alex Langstone, one of the other authors in the book, besides Caroline herself. And she, or I'm sorry, he has this subtitle at the beginning of his chapter called Ellen or Elin, Helena or Nehelenia. So who was Helena slash Ellen? We have several archetypal contenders. Ellen is seen as a mythical road builder of the Mabinogion, the guardian protectress of Britain. She's a goddess of sovereignty, as Caitlin Matthews discussed earlier in the book. And as St. Helen, she is the unofficial patron saint of archaeology. She is proposed by both Wise and Potter to be the green lady of the woodland and antlered goddess of the reindeer tracks of northern Europe. In their 1986 booklet, Ellen of the Shimmering Ways, in her guise as Elin, she may be connected to cattle, farming, death, rebirth, and the sea. In some Welsh tradition, she becomes the wife of Merlin. See Charles Squire's Celtic Myth and Legend. And according to The Forgotten Faith, The Witness of the Celtic Saints by Anthony Duncan, she is one of the sisters of Aryan Road. Again, Welsh word. I think that she may also be an ancient Brythonic Cornish goddess with links to Cape Cornwall and in particular to North Cornwall and Lundy via her ancestry to Wales and Northern England. Many of the Dark Age saints of North Cornwall and North Devon came originally from Wales and there are stories that Ellen visited Lundy Indeed, there are two other Ellen sites in view of Lundy, one at Abbotsham, where the old church was dedicated to St. Ellen, and the other at Croyd, where the lost ancient chapel was dedicated to St. Helen. So, you know, like most of the goddesses that we've discussed on this show with people who are scholars and academics, Ellen is like any other goddess in that she has pre-Christian roots. She has possibly upper Neolithic roots or Paleolithic roots. 
there is a case to be made that she is a primordial goddess. And Ellen is my, what I call my, my patron goddess, because though if you've heard me talk on this show before about my own spiritual beliefs, I am a monotheist. And I believe that there is one supreme godhead, deity, sovereign, whatever you want to call it. And that that divinity is feminine in nature. But I have also called her the diamond god, right? With my little play on using god and goddess interchangeably. I think of it as God is just a nickname for goddess <laughs> when I need like that a quick one syllable like oh my god this <laughs> um, <clears throat> so anyway you've heard me talk about her as the diamond god and in that I mean that there are many 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 different aspects of Ellen just like the ones I was reading about today and probably more that we haven't discovered and may never discover in this lifetime, in this physical lifetime. So, Ellen is just one of those aspects, and she is the aspect that I call the girlfriend god, because she is very much a girlfriend, both in the platonic and romantic sense, but I can get into that in a later episode. Um, but that is what she is for me. And, you know... Having a spiritual, and I would say religious life, although, as you know, with my looking into the mother, the chapel of our mother God, that I haven't found a religious body that really underlies what I believe uh, as goddess, as the Godhead and supreme deity over all, and the creator of all. I wish I had a religion that I could claim, but I just don't. I mean, if I had to, I could call myself a Dianic Wiccan, but that seems, I don't know, just what I've read about Dianic Wicca, it still doesn't really fit with me. And uh, because I don't think she's necessarily a lunar goddess or a solar goddess, I think she is both because she created both. Anyway, the point is faith, which is what I have in her, faith is always based in what I cannot experience with my senses, right? I can't see her, taste her, touch her, smell her as like what a human form of her would be like, right? So I have to believe in, I, and I do feel like I see her in a way. I do see her, taste her, touch her, smell her, because when I'm in nature, I get all of those sensations, right? I can taste salt uh, when I'm by the water. I can feel the water. I can feel the breeze through my hair. I can see the changing colors of the leaves. But as far as what she can do for me and through me in my life, in this physical body, that is solely a measure of my faith, right? And I, I listen to a lot of Abraham Hicks and, you know, one of the things that she says that I really like is 
you have to believe it to see it rather than you have to believe it to see it. Or one of the things that I, I listen to a lot of Abraham Hicks and one of the things that Abraham Hicks says that I that really resonates with me is you have to believe it to see it rather than you have to see it to believe it. And I think that's a really good description of what faith is, right? Because in my view of my own life, I have seen her perform miracles in my life, true miracles, things that I never would have chosen to do or accomplished of and by myself. Because I consider my relationship with her, I mean, yes, she is obviously a figure that has greater and more power than I do. That's how she does those things that I can't do for myself. But I also consider myself a bit of a co-creator, if you will, with her. And, you know, in the things that I want to, to, to have in my life and things that I want to call into my experience. And that way I think we create together. And the other core spiritual belief that informs my, my practice and my spiritual worldview is that... <clears throat> And, and I've been saying this for years, even became before I became a soul goddess worshiper and devotee, that I believe that 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 whatever God or goddess or multiple gods or goddesses that we believe in, um, that whatever that is exists both within me and outside of me. So in order to, I'm sorry, I live very close to a school with very young children. That's that screaming you hear in the background. Anyway, um, I believe that when I am lost or lonely or whatever, I have to go to her. But sometimes I've got to go inside to find her. I think that's what that whole line in The Charge of the Goddess is about, right? That... I am, I am what is obtained at the end of desire. And that means all of my desires. You know, worldly and otherworldly, materially and spiritually. I gotta be able to find her within in order to be able to find her without, if that makes sense. So, I am finding those screaming children very distracting. So I'm gonna stop talking. Thanks for taking this journey with me today. And you'll... Get another episode next Saturday. Hey, thanks for listening. New episodes drop every Saturday, so keep tuning in. You can also find The Girlfriend God on social media, both on TikTok and Instagram, hashtag The Girlfriend God, hashtag The Girlfriend God podcast. Again, thanks for listening, liking, sharing, and following. The Girlfriend